Welcome to Recalculating Adventist Life Now. I'm Skip Bell, your host. The focus today is the abolition movement and how, as a Seventh-day Adventist faith, we have contributed, even in the years prior to the formation of our movement. My guest is Kevin Burton. Kevin is a faculty in the History Department at Southern Adventist University. He earned an MA in Religion from Andrews, and he's currently finishing a PhD in American Religious History at Florida State University. He's married, he and his wife Sarah have two children. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you, it's glad to be here. So Kevin, we're examining how the Adventist faith movement founders, those engaged early in our history, may have had a concern for or engagement in the uh, abolition uh, movement. What was the Second Advent Advent movement? I should say, identified with or engaged in the abolition movement at all? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, and to answer that question, it's best to specify two different periods of history here. So during the Millerite period, and that, that goes through the mid-1840s, um, the Second Advent Movement was directly central, in fact, to the abolitionist cause and movement. Um, and we know that because numerous of the most prominent abolitionist leaders were, in fact, Millerite leaders. Um, and that includes Garrett Smith, um, that includes William Still, Sojourner Truth, Angelina Grimke, Simon S. Jocelyn, J.N.T. Tucker, and a host of others that I could name. And so during that period, um, in the 1830s, but especially the 1840s, um, Millerism, you could say, is actually directly central to the abolitionist movement. Um, now, later in the 1850s, late 1840s and, and, and 1850s, when the Millerite movement splinters, the Second Advent movement and Adventists of varieties are, are now going to be on the margins. And the main reason is because um, their numbers dwindle uh, drastically. And so, uh, but nevertheless, you find Advent Christian leaders who, who still remain active in the cause and Seventh-day Adventist pioneers as well. But they're doing it in, in, uh, in ways that are, are not noticed by most people in the United States and historians have, have not yet appreciated the, the richness of their contributions to the movement. You describe Joseph Bates as a radical abolitionist. Joseph Bates was engaged in the Millerite movement and uh, one of the pioneer people helping form uh, the subsequent Seventh-day Adventist faith movement. Uh, can you share the historical evidence that you have discovered for that? Sure. Um, we have noticed his comments um, in his own autobiography for a long time, uh, where Joseph Bates talks about his abolition experience in some detail, and yet he doesn't go into all of the rich detail that he could have done. Um, he was actually quite modest and humble of his own, his own past and contributions there to the movement. Um, unfortunately, things like the Fairhaven Anti-Slavery Society records are are no longer available um, but joseph bates was president of that society for several years um, in fact he's elected president um, in 1839 when he becomes a millerite and will continue to serve in that capacity until 1842 so all of his years as president of that society were as a millerite um, uh, millerite leader in fact 
Uh, but we do find other, other sources, uh, particularly The Liberator. That's uh, an anti-slavery paper edited by William Lloyd Garrison in Boston. Um, there are several uh, mentions of Joseph Bates in there, either active in an anti-slavery society or uh, him writing in, uh, talking about t- uh, anti-slavery activity in his church or you know something to that effect. Um, we also have uh, some letters. Um, Martin Kuchbach has uh, recently discovered uh, letters uh, that uh, Joseph Bates has written to a friend of his in Fairhaven named John Bunker. Um, I have not even yet gone to, gotten to go through that material yet, but I have been told that there is stuff about his anti-slavery activism there. Um, he also wrote tracks, his first tracks, um, uh, that, that actually are, are instrumental in, in gathering in Seventh-day Adventists, um, people who are accepting the Seventh-day Sabbath as well as the Sanctuary Doctrine. Uh, he's writing stuff about uh, abolition in there, uh, in the reference and context of Texas annexation in the, the Mexican-American War. Um, another rich source that we have are petitions, um, and those are housed either in the Massachusetts State Archive or in the National Archives, and unfortunately numerous of Joseph Bates' petitions and others that he signed um, have not survived, but a, a, lar- a significant number have. Um, and so, and we know from uh, some other uh, records and so forth that he petitioned uh, for several of the things where we, those documents no longer exist. But uh, that actually gives us a fairly, fairly good perspective of his own abolitionists' endeavors. Um, not to mention his, uh, his writing for the Seventh-day Adventist period, including the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, where he'll uh, have lots of denunciations against slavery as well. So there's a pretty good amount of, of data that we have. But of course, we always want more, right? <laughs> yes. Now, so you described Joseph Bates in this political period in American history when the notion of abolition was a very politically divisive one and national leaders were trying to walk the line in not offending the South and at the same time not allowing slavery to spread into new territories. It was a huge issue in our American history. But you describe Joseph Bates as clearly speaking against slavery. That, that's interesting. What is this thing of immediatism that you have written about? Immediatism is, uh, is really the best way to understand abolitionism itself. Um, there had been people uh, against slavery um, since the founding of this nation, uh, starting with uh, the slaves themselves. Um, and uh, black protests had been strong um, throughout all of these years before the founding of the, uh, of the American nation that we have now with the Constitution and Declaration of Independence and all of these things. Um, but in the 1820s, uh, you start to have a group of white uh, Americans who start to wake up and listen uh, to, to black protests. There had been some scattered individuals throughout, especially among the Quakers before the 1820s. But in the late 1820s, mid to late 1820s, there starts to be a movement that coalesces and white Americans who are in the overwhelming majority, especially in the North, um, they start to listen to black protest and start to echo black protest. And their call for abolition is that they want it to be immediate, and they really mean imminent or soon or very fast. They don't mean like at this very second. I mean, they don't expect that that will happen. Uh, but they want it to be immediate or very soon, 
and they want it to be total. Mm -hmm. And so that's their project. And they also are advocating for equal rights among blacks uh, in, that are freed as well as, of course, the liberated slaves. And so those, those, that is the agenda. And it's in contrast to some people who are genuinely anti-slavery, but there's still a small number who are wanting it to happen gradually. Um, the reason that they, they tended to be, if they're abolitionists, that, that is, the reason they wanted it to be gradual is because they thought that the slaves themselves needed to be compensated, not the slave master. And so they were, they were advocating for that, that cause, either the slaves being compensated by money uh, or education or both or land um, or something to that effect. Um, the people who are in contrast to both of these types of abolitionists are known as colonizationists. Um, and they are the ones who are wanting to rid America of black people by sending them to Africa. Um, and in fact, the colonization societies, uh, which are starting to be founded in 1816, they actually target free blacks more than they, they target slaves. And so their project was really just a racist ad agenda to make America white. Yeah. Now, outside of that, um, you have many other, the overwhelming majority of Americans in the North and South who are not in either camp who are either ardently pro-slavery, who want to defend slavery to the, to the hilt, <laughs> yes. um, or people who are just very indifferent. Uh, they will not, uh, they do not like abolitionists. They do not enjoy hearing their protests or care about their protests. They might dislike slavery, but they will not call it a sin. Um, and so therefore no one is implicated in the judgment. Um, and, and facing eternal torment in hell, or if you be like if you're a Seventh Day Adventist later, and other other Millerite groups like the Adventist Christians, they'll believe in annihilationism, where there is no ever burning hell, but you'll just sort of cease to exist. Um, in other words, if you if you believe that slavery is a sin, that means that God is going to judge you, and you will not enjoy eternal life. And the overwhelming majority of Americans refuse to call it that. Um, it's not, in fact, until the middle of the Civil War that the majority of Northern Christians will, in fact, call slavery a sin. Um, and so that is the major project for abolitionists, immediatists, and gradualists. They're trying to convince Americans that slavery is a sin. That's their first and foremost goal. They will add others to it, okay. of course. And Joseph Bates aligned with that group, immediatism or Garrisonian abolitionist. He was in New England, um, and uh, how did other New England Christians relate to— I, you have hinted that it, it was kind of an unpopular position. Bates was so co committed um, uh, in a moral or biblical opposition to slavery, both a biblical and moral opposition. He was willing to go against popular opinion. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, Joseph Bates is, especially in the 1830s, is in within, he's in a no more than 2% minority. Oh, my. Um, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people, even in the North, even in New England itself, they are not abolitionists. Um, and they're decidedly not abolitionists. It's not just mm. like, oh, we, we don't like slavery, we're against slavery. No, they are not uh, for the cause. Um, and so, and especially as we get into the radicalness of Joseph Bates's abolitionism, we see that he is even in rarer air, and he will advocate things that even some of the abolitionists themselves will not advocate for, um, such mm -hmm. as interracial marriage and, and against Jim Crow cars and Haitian independence, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. 
what was the Christian connection? Well, that is that is Joseph Bates' faith, and it was a renegade Baptist sect um, that's founded by Elias Smith and Abner Jones in the early 1800s. Um, they're mostly uh, uh, in the Northeast and in New York. There are some in the South, but they are often confused uh, with the Disciples of Christ or what people call the Campbellites, uh, people or the Barton Stone and Campbell the Stone Campbell movement. Um, and they shouldn't be confused because uh, a lot of the Campbellites or Disciples of Christ were located in the South. Um, while some of them were abolitionists, the overwhelming majority of them were not. But the Christian Connectionists, by the mid-1840s, they had uh, virtually all become uh, abolitionists, and you could call them an abolitionist uh, sect, I would say, by the mid-1840s, at least in uh, New York and New England. Um, they were loosely associated, and uh, they were very independent, and so they were against creeds. They were against any kind of formal, uh, regulated, uh, hierarchical type of positions in the church or liturgy in the church. Um, and these things made them more inclusive of women. You had a lot of uh, female ministers uh, and preachers among the Christian Connectionists and uh, blacks as well who were treated uh, more equally than in other churches. In other words, they wouldn't segregate them. Um, at least segregation was condemned by the leaders. Um, and so this is, uh, this is significant and that th this is a, a, a religion that really feeds the Millerite movement and the uh, Seventh-day Adventist movement to a significant degree um, because James White himself is also uh, a member of the Christian Connection. It's not just Joseph Bates and there's a host of others as well. Wow, that's an insight into the worldview of those forming and moving the Adventist faith movement forward after 1844. Now, speaking of that, do you have some evidence that Bates continued as a voice for racial equality in voting and uh, all the areas that equality would represent as the Adventist faith moved forward? Sure. Um, I mentioned his petitioning, and uh, that starts um, when he is a Millerite. And so he's uh, petitioning for some of the most radical things. Um, uh, most abolitionists are going to petition for things like the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia or for Congress to repeal its gag laws um, between 1836 and 1844. There were laws in place that said that slavery could not be debated in Congress and so abolitionists would petition against that. But it became rarer for abolitionists to petition against the independence uh, a petition for the U.S. to recognize the independence of Haiti um, or for them to a petition for the abolition of Jim Crow cars, uh, train cars in the north, or for them especially to petition for the abolition of the interracial marriage law that said blacks and whites couldn't intermarry. And Joseph Bates is not just signing these petitions, he circulates them. And so this is significant because you, you have him in the most radical of radical camps um, in the abolitionist movement. Um, now that's in the that's in the 1830s and early 1840s. Um, whenever he becomes a a Seventh Day Adventist, he doesn't stop petitioning. Um, you see Joseph Bates petitioning for uh, the abolition of the death penalty um, in 1849 and 1850 and on and on into the 1850s. Now he's not circulating these petitions at this point in life. He's traveling as an Adventist minister from place to place. But whenever he's there in town at his home, 
and there's a petition that he can sign. He signed it, apparently. Um, um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, he uh, speaks out very strongly against uh, America and slavery and, and uh, imperialism and so forth um, whenever he is writing these tracts that bring in uh, our first pioneers into the church. Um, he's got a few of them on the Sabbath, and they're, they're blending the Sabbath and the sanctuary doctrines, and he denounces without blinking an eye in very strong language uh, the nation for its neighbor murdering this neighbor murdering country that's stealing slaves and selling human bodies and so forth and he's very he waxes eloquent <laughs> um, in these things um, and it's fascinating because this doc this stuff is central to uh, what other Adventists are reading who who get brought in so you know if they would have been turned off like drastically turned off to this they are not gonna want to be associated with Joseph Bates. Ah, um, that is interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, and so so they 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 agree, <laughs> um, yes. and and you see this you see this definitely personified in the 1850s when Joseph Bates and other Adventist ministers will start uh, promoting their their understanding of the two horned beast in America and prophecy. So, that's that's quite central, and I think we'll we'll talk more about that later too. So I'll I'll save that for later too. And he spoke up in uh, against uh, the laws forbidding interracial marriage. It was very unpopular to do so, but he spoke up against those laws. Oh, he definitely did. And, and that, yeah, that was, that was definitely uh, controversial. So you can see uh, the statistics of some of Joseph Bates' petitions in the same year, like in 1840, 41, and 42, for all of the petitions he's circulating. And you can see that he gets uh, oftentimes nearly twice as many signatures on a petition that's for the uh, against like the annexation of Texas or Florida as slave states versus his uh, petition for the abolishment of these laws against inter interracial marriage. But he's eloquent here. I mean, he's not writing the petitions um, themselves. These are, these are stock petitions uh, put out by Garrison's uh, camp of, of abolitionists. But nevertheless, petitions themselves are multi-authorship documents. And so Scholars recognize that the signatories, the people who sign these documents, they're virtually saying that they are the author of the statement above, um, even mm -hmm. though they didn't literally write it. And so you see Joseph Bates, uh, his petitions on this, on this issue, very eloquent. So, for example, there are several reasons listed why uh, this law against interracial marriage should be abolished. Uh, number one, the most important here, on principle, he says, and this is a quote, he says it's wrong in the sight of God who is no respecter of persons. And so his faith is central to this. He also goes on to say it denies that all men are born equal. He calls it a vestige of the slave code. Um, he calls it a perpetual insult and badge of degradation. And he says that it's opposed to the spirit of free institutions. And so this is, this is significant. And you see other uh, Adventists signing this petition as well as others that are for this cause. Um, there, are, there are probably many. I haven't had a chance. I mean, finding petitions takes, it's very time consuming, but I've, I've done a bit of it. And uh, for Seventh-day Adventists, Joseph Bates' wife was also very much uh, engaged in this enterprise. She signs all these petitions, including uh, the ones about interracial marriage. And Joseph Bates' own petition is signed by William Gifford, another Seventh-day Adventist pioneer who um, was also an Underground Railroad operator. Um, 
Now in the Millerite period, like in the Millerite for the Millerites too, there were lots of them as well. And I found uh, Luther Boutel, who becomes a pioneer for the Advent Christians, uh, John Deland, Apollos Hale signs uh, interracial marriage petitions, and he's the one uh, involved in, in making the prophecy chart mm-hmm. uh, that the Millerites had. And then our very own Joshua Himes, the very like the cent- most mm. central leader of the Millerite cause, is petitioning for these laws to be abolished in the state of Massachusetts as well. And so this is not uh, terribly uncommon uh, an, amongst the the second in the Second Advent movement. Although not all of them, I'm sure, were favorable to it. Um, I'm sure that there were many Millerites and Seventh Day Adventists who were opposed to this. But nevertheless, if you have one of our founders <laughs> and leading pioneers who is advocating for it, it's not too marginal. Um, at least it, it's going to be approved by key leaders. <laughs> now, Kevin, you have given some insight into contemporaries in the birth of the Adventist movement who uh, shared and aligned with Bates' activism, who shared his worldview. I'm interested to know uh, if post-birth of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and of course, especially the Whites, James and Ellen White. Now, I know that your study uh, absorbs a significant amount of time. It's not easy to uncover all these things, and your focus is the Millerite movement time period. But do you have any evidence so far of the whites aligning with and promoting abolition? Yes, I do. And and yeah, my dissertation is going, I've narrowed it to focus just on the Millerites, but I'm going to continue this um, and, and do a much deeper dive into Seventh-day Adventism itself. But First of all, to answer this question, you have to know a little bit about the context and the history of the abolition movement, which has been, honestly, uh, to be quite frank, overlooked by uh, our scholars who have written on this topic in our own uh, works. So first and foremost, uh, the abolitionist movement goes through a schism between 1837 and 1840, and this is in the height the beginning or the dead center of the Millerite period. And so Joshua Himes is converting to Millerism in 1839 and will start to publish the main periodical of the movement, The Signs of the Times, in 1840. And so this is all happening in the midst of a schism where abolitionists are fighting, uh, bickering amongst themselves, and it's all over tactics. And so this is significant. And so one of the biggest things that happens is that in the wake of this schism, the anti-slavery societies, they start to disintegrate. And there are very few of them that will survive into the 1850s and 1860s. Um, And one of the major reasons for this is because of money. Who are you gonna send your money to? The old organization loyal to Garrison or a new organization loyal to the Tappan brothers? Um, Or uh, what about political abolitionism? People who wanna vote and and try to form third parties. Uh, Why don't we send our money to, to these parties so that we can have Liberty Party uh, lecturers and published Liberty Party papers and campaign posters and all sorts of things. Um, and so things are just really shifting and there are major tactical shifts that arise during this period. I, I just mentioned the Liberty Party. That was an abolitionist party with two things on its platform. Uh, the total and immediate abolition of slavery and equal rights for blacks. That's it. And between 1840 and 1848 they are running their candidates for president and uh, trying to get uh, people elected on that platform um, for president and all the other local offices in their community. So that political abolitionism is on the rise. Uh, There's also the free missions movement where abolitionists are going to start focusing on 
ha making sure that missionaries to foreign countries and other parts of the United States are not sending slave owners or pro-slavery people to be missionaries. And so this is significant, and the Union Missionary Society is formed. Um, you also have people who focus on trying to get uh, their denominations rid of the sin of slavery. And so you see the Methodists and Baptists both splitting in 1844 and 1845, well, really, really between 1843 and 1845, which is, of course, the height of the Millerite movement. And Millerites are actively involved in all of those things. Now, moving on to the Adventist period, you shift again in abolitionist tactics in the 1850s. The decade opens with the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which now makes it mm -hmm. uh, legal and also uh, you're required. If you're white uh, or black, but especially if you're white in the North, you are now required by federal law not only to allow slave catchers to come get their, uh, their slaves or potentially kidnap somebody, but also to assist them in this process. And so if you do not assist them in this process, and especially if you're found uh, aiding uh, and abetting a fugitive slave, then you are going to be fined up to $3,000. That's about three years wages for the average working person. Hmm. That's a significant sum. And up to six months in jail. So this is no small thing, and this is federal law. And so this causes tactical shifts as well. But other things are changing too, like in the political abolitionist realm, the Liberty Party disintegrates in 1848 and most of the people in that party merge with the Free Soil Party and this is going to be the thing that will lead into the the Republican Party in 1854 well the Free Soil Party was different than the than the Liberty Party in in its platform they adopt a whole host of other things but mostly on the subject of slavery they do not advocate for the immediate or total abolition of slavery or equal rights for blacks what they're advocating for is free soil the non-extension of slavery. They don't want to interfere with slavery where it's at. They're fine with it being there, but they're trying to get enough people to, to, to move forward so they can not make sure that slavery doesn't expand. Well, this causes a problem for a lot of the, the Millerites, I think, from what I'm finding, um, because they are, uh, in, in a lot of ways, perfectionists who want to make sure that their politics and their religion are pure and untainted by sin. And so they can't, a lot of them can't support the Free Soil Party. Now, many of them don't have those qualms, and they do. And so their anti-slavery continues on in that sort of trajectory. And we find many Seventh-day Adventists who are members of the Free Soil Party and later the Republican Party. But many of them, many of the people that had been involved, like our, our, our first GC president, John Byington, there's no evidence whatsoever that he joined the Free Soil Party. Um, so I actually think that he probably didn't. I, there's other members who, who apparently abandoned that. Joseph P. Kellogg is another. They apparently abandoned uh, politics, uh, at least partisan politics at this time, because there is no pure party to align with. And they don't want to support these pro-slavery Whig or Democrat parties, and they can't, they can't even support a free soil party because it's not purely devoted to anti-slavery. And so this is the context of the 1850s in which Seventh-day Adventism is born. And so you see lots of Seventh-day Adventists who are not going to advocate for voting uh, because of this fact. There's no pure anti-slavery party to vote for. Um, this is just like Garrison, by the way. William Lloyd Garrison and the most radical of abolitionists that are loyal to him, they eschew voting as well because they don't find any kind of party that's uh, available, but also they think that the Constitution itself is pro-slavery and so they cannot support the nation in any capacity they refuse to participate in national fasts just like seventh-day Adventists 
And so Avenists don't stay loyal to Garrison in the in the main sense because he mm-hmm. becomes uh, anti uh, anti Sabbath, especially. Um, where he says the Sabbath should just be abolished and it shouldn't exist. And so they can't get on board with his religion. And that, and his religion is infused with his abolitionism. But nevertheless, they maintain some of his tactics on the political side of the spectrum about voting uh, and their relation to the state and their government. And you see that in their doctrine of the two-horned beast. And so this is all the background and context for James and Ellen White. Okay, And yeah. you have to understand that to answer this question, the direct yes. question you asked. So James White himself uh, grew up as an abolitionist in an abolitionist home. And so he actually, he actually says, this is a, an article that Benjamin Baker found and sent to me from the Review and Herald in 1880. And James White is reflecting back. And he says, quote, Our birth and education were in New England, where anti-slavery principles took strong hold of us in youth. And... He's referring to himself there in the sort of editorial plural of our and we, which he does all of the time. But he's talking about his own education, his own life, and his own home. And you see evidence for this outside of this because um, one of the petitions I've located uh, that was sent to the Maine state legislature um, to abolish the gag laws was signed by James White's mother and oldest sister. Um, The only two women, in fact, old enough to sign this petition. And so you see some of their own activism um, in, this, uh, in this front as well. Um, you see numerous articles that James White will, will both author and publish in the Review and Herald that are against slavery in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Most of it will be tied in with their doctrine of the two-horned beast, which I'll talk about in a second. And then also to just state it very uh, frank, Ellen White has numerous comments that she makes as well um, condemning slavery and a whole host of other sins associated with that. Um, and uh, she has been not given just due, unfortunately, because some have criticized her for saying, oh, she's speaking against the fugitive slave law in the late 1850s when it's, you know, almost not a thing anymore. Well, <laughs> it was definitely still a thing, first of all, in the late 1850s when she writes it. And also, people have not uh, paid attention to the fact that Ellen White, as a prophet, is speaking up when she needed to speak. And so you find numerous other Adventist pioneers speaking out against the Fugitive Slave Law and for uh, for the Underground Railroad in the review. Jan Loughborough, Jane Andrews, Uriah Smith, you name all the pioneers, they're doing so. Um, Ellen White is doing so at the time she does, probably because in the late 1850s and the early 1860s, you see a spike in pro-slavery sentiment in the North. The Republican Party itself will go through a dip and backpedal on uh, its own views on the subject, and they will they will go through a conservative period where they will support the fugitive slave law. And it's at that time that Ellen White is writing this stuff. And so now there's a need uh, in the broader northern community and perhaps even among Adventists themselves. We see one pro-slavery Adventist emerge, Alexander Ross, and as soon as he does so, as soon as he speaks out publicly on this issue, Ellen White comes down very hard and says that he must be disfellowshipped because wow. he, he mm-hmm. cannot. We cannot have anyone uh, supporting this. And what's critical about this is that he's not owning slaves. He lives in New York. He doesn't own a single slave. Slavery had been outlawed in 1827 in New York. He was simply a racist pro-slavery person. 
And so Ellen White made it very clear that you could not hold those views and be a good, faithful Seventh-day Adventist. And she said, there are a few of them out there, but they need to be disfellowshipped. Now, Kevin, uh, your, your enthusiasm for what you've discovered is so uh, apparent. We, uh, we out uh, in the homes and the pews throughout the country, throughout the world, in the Adventist faith, rarely hear about this. Why, why is it that we haven't heard more about the leadership of early Adventists in this cause, their engagement in the Underground Railroad, the things they said, etc.? Part of it is because uh, we haven't had enough data. Um, there hasn't been enough research, and in fact, no one has done in-depth research on this subject. Um, the most in-depth research that has been done is only about 10 pages long, maybe 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 12, I don't know. Uh, you know it's very short, and so no one has actively done an in-depth study of this subject for the Millerite period or the Seventh-day Adventist period. There have been a few articles published by people um, that uh, on the subject, of course, and several people have talked about it. But because of the fact that we didn't have the data, it's usually framed in uh, the sort of ex-abolitionist uh, narrative. So this, this idea that abolitionists, uh, that most Millerites and so forth, or a lot of them at least, were, were abolitionists, but whenever they became Adventist, either of the Millerite variety or the Seventh-day Adventist variety, they gave up on their activism because they were so concerned about a future world to come that they wouldn't care about anything on earth. Mm -hmm. um, and that's patently inaccurate. It's just actually just factually wrong. Um, and because the reason it's wrong is for a variety of reasons. First of all, they are active. <laughs> they are saying stuff, doing stuff. But also, people have, the people making these arguments have failed to recognize the shifts and tactics that other, other abolitionists are making. So the things that Adventists are doing are unique in certain ways, but they're not unique in, in the broader sense. Mm -hmm. for, for example, abolitionists had always been trying to convince people that slavery was a sin. That's exactly what Adventists are doing. They're not changing that base tactic a, a single iota. Mm -hmm. um, and the other major thing is, is that a lot of abolitionists, the overwhelming majority of them, in fact, turn inward where they're really focusing on combating slavery in their churches. Um, and I mentioned the schism, and I mentioned the church schisms in the 1840s, but what's critical about that is that there were several anti-slavery sects that arose in the 1840s um, and so John R. McKivigan, a historian, has written on this and he's defined them and said what it takes to be an anti-slavery sect is to believe and advocate that slavery is a sin, unqualified sin, without question, and you're willing to discipline in the church people who are supporting slavery. Well, I, I've already mentioned Ellen White's statement here. Yeah. That we fit that uh, the definition of an anti-slavery sect. It's just that John R. McKivigan didn't include us in that, and so I'm going to be arguing that we were one of this one of these sects that came out um, of the churches in the 1840s because of slavery, um, and uh, also because of the Advent doctrine. This is also part of it, and we create an anti-slavery denomination into where what we're doing as a church, everywhere our preachers are going, preaching against the two-horned beast, talking about it, writing about it, this is their anti-slavery activism. And this is not something like one historian has, has uh, derided it as paper radicalism. And he's argued that Adventists were not political. I'm sorry, but that's inaccurate because you can look and see what happens in the South. Adventists in the late 1850s and early 1860s, now I'm talking about Seventh-day Adventists, they start to try to go down south 
and they're blocked. Moses Hull, one of our Seventh-day Adventist ministers, goes to Missouri, one of the border states where there's slavery, and he is told that he cannot preach on Seventh-day Adventism, distribute Adventist literature, or uh, condemn slavery, uh, or he will be fined and put in jail. My goodness. And so, and, and then James White later specifies that our, our literature had been positively forbidden in any, any slave state. And so you cannot tell me that this is not political. It's directly political. And so um, this is significant. And plus, there's also more going on. There are some Adventists who are involved in political abolitionism as well. Uh, there are people in the Free Soil Party, um, and they will go into the, into the Republican Party. But we even have Seventh-day Adventists in the most radical of political organizations uh, political, uh, at this time, in the 1850s and 1860s. So the Liberty Party disintegrated. I mentioned that in 1848. But there was a small minority of holdovers in upstate New York who create the Liberty League. And they, they start to run Garrett Smith, who was a Millerite and Seventh-day Sabbath keeper, as President of the United States. And they will run him three times as President of the United States. In 1860, the name of that organization and the party has shifted into what they call the Radical Political Abolitionist Party. That's the name of it. And I know uh, it, that party was founded by numerous um, former or current Adventists, uh, Millerites, and, and, and so forth. And there are Seventh Day, there are Second, uh, sorry, Advent Christians who are part of this. There are Seventh Day Adventists who are part of this as well. And I know of two of them. So uh, John Byington's brother, the first GC president's brother, Anson Byington, was a member of the Radical Political Abolitionist Party. Also, John W. Sawyer. He was a Seventh Day Adventist, and he was not just involved in the party; he was a leader in the party. So in 1860, he's an elector for the party, which means he's campaigning for Garrett Smith to be put in the White House. He's working directly with Frederick Douglass, okay? John W. Sawyer lived in Port Byron, New York. He was active in the Underground Railroad, and his children are going to become devout leaders in the church. And they're working, uh, they start to work in the 1860s in the review office and so forth, and they're very close with the whites. And so these are not, they're not, the Sawyers are not marginal people. Um, and so you have even people like that. And so the idea that Adventists are uninvolved is simply in, inaccurate. You have mentioned that uh, the prophetic image of the two-horned beast, etc. It, it, they connected that to the cause that was going on in the present political life, uh, the social life in America. Oh, they definitely did. And yeah. what's really fascinating is I've done, I've, people have talked about this doctrine before, and you can especially see like Douglas Morgan's work in the Adventism in the American Republic. He writes a lot about the two-horned beast. It's, it's fantastic. But I've uncovered a lot of new documentation on the history and, uh, and so forth of that doctrine forming. And some historians had speculated that it might have been formed in response to the fugitive slave law, and I, I'm convinced that there's no question of that. Um, we've overlooked... Uh, who is the originator of that doctrine in Adventism? Uh, you'll see in virtually all uh, writers who've written on it, they're going to give the credit to Jane Andrews. The reason that they do so is because Jane Andrews is the first Adventist minister to write a very long uh, article uh, ex explicating this doctrine and explaining this doctrine and so forth. And so he, he's important. But the doctrine actually arose with Samuel W. Rhodes. Samuel W. Rhodes was one of our pioneering Seventh-day Adventist ministers. Some people in the earliest years actually called him one of the founders of the church. 
but he ends up uh, not being as active later, and so people forgot about him quickly. He doesn't last as long as Joseph Bates or any of the others who are young. Um, and so, but he's the one who comes up with this doctrine. Now, who is Samuel Rhodes? What, where, where does he live? He lives in Madison County, New York. That's the same county that Garrett Smith lived in. And in fact, he, he knew Garrett Smith personally and had eaten at his table in his mansion. And uh, he is the one creating this doctrine and he does it within days, um, step by step of, of the fugitive slave law being passed in the various uh, stages of its existence through the Senate, then the House, and the President signing it. And so you can see there starts to be anti-fugitive slave law meetings in the summer of 1850. It's during this time that, that uh, Rhodes actually creates this doctrine and he makes his own prophecy chart. And he puts the two-horned beast on there and he identifies the, the two-horned beast as the United States, uh, usually using the, the shorthand words for republicanism and, and uh, Protestantism. And those are the two horns that get associated with this beast. Um, and so this is being created as the fugitive slave law is being enacted. And, and you can see three days after uh, it, it passes, I think, the Senate. Don't get me, I may be wrong there, maybe the House, it's, or maybe even when the president signs it into law. It's three days after one of these key moments where another Seventh-day Adventist writes a letter to James White, uh, which is later published, where he says, I now see the light. I see how America is this, uh, this beast. Um, and so this is significant. Um, in October of 1850, Ellen White has a vision at the home of Otis Nichols. And she sees the two-horned beast. She recognizes as truth, biblical truth. And, and she also promotes and says, we need a new prophecy chart. And it was Otis Nichols, in fact, who publishes the first uh, Seventh-day Adventist prophecy chart, which came out in January 1851. Um, and it's very likely that he models it after the chart of Samuel Rhodes. Samuel Rhodes had showed the Whites his chart, and they approved of it. They loved it. They made good comments about it. And so this doctrine you see in 1851, you see not just Jane Andrews, but you see Samuel Rhodes, uh, you see Otis Nichols, um, and others writing about America as this beast, connecting it with slavery. Now, where does Andrews fit in? Andrews fits in because Samuel W. Rhodes was the one mentoring Jane Andrews on the ministerial track. And so Jane Andrews was traveling with Samuel Rhodes in the summer of 1850 and in early 1851 um, as he guided him uh, in the ministry. And so it's no surprise that Jane Andrews, who was a prolific writer, is the first person to write the first exposition of this doctrine. But nevertheless, it was Samuel Rhodes who is the first to see it in Scripture. And so... This is a major, major component of Adventism uh, prophecy, fundamental beliefs, and their uh, approach to slavery. And I call it a fundamental belief because we put it on the prophecy chart. You couldn't talk about our understanding of prophecy without talking about the two-horned beast. And you couldn't talk about the three angels' message, especially the third angel's message, without talking about the two-horned beast. And that's because the third angel talks about the beast who's going to make everyone get a mark on their hand and forehead and make them worship an image. That's the two-horned beast. So they have to know that prophecy. They have to know that beast. They have to have that doctrine worked in. And so it was central and core. They put it on the chart so ministers everywhere they're going are preaching on this. But it's also lay people. I see women as well as men, lay as well as clergy, speaking out on this in various forms and fashions. A laywoman named Arasa Buckland 
purchases the chart, and then she moved to Virginia in the 1850s. And so she's trying to preach it down there, but later says she doesn't have any success. She laments the fact that she's living amongst all this sin and in Babylon and all this kind of stuff, and then her and her husband end up moving back to Wisconsin a short time later. You have other women and other men and other lay people who are talking about this in their communities, um, amongst their friends that they know, uh, in some literary societies the topic is being discussed. And so this is not just some periphery thing. Um, I think that later Adventists um, tried to make this marginal, tried to make it uh, not a fundamental core aspect of our, of our theology because they started to not like it. And yeah. so that's why things have changed. But there, that's, a, that's another big story. Yeah, but, Kevin. Yeah, that, that is, that's central. The two-horned beast is, is central. So that's, that wraps it up. <laughs> well, that, that's fascinating. Listeners, I'll, I'll encourage you to uh, look up some of Kevin's work. Uh, Kevin Burton, faculty at uh, Southern Adventist University. And, of course, footnotes and references can take you a lot of directions. Kevin, you've helped us understand more about the characteristic uh, of early Adventist leaders being activists in causes like race, uh, as well as women's rights and temperance. Uh, just in summary, in just a minute or two, what can, what can we as Adventists today take away from these moments in Adventist history? Well, I think our pioneers have challenged us um, to stand for truth, when it's unpopular. Um, you have to understand that during this period, during the antebellum period, it was never popular to be an abolitionist. These are people that are being mobbed, literally. Many of them are being killed and martyred um, throughout the, the entire antebellum period. And so this was never a popular thing. Our pioneers, some of them faced uh, antagonists um, because of their activism. Um, and so that's critically important. Um, God is no respecter of persons. He, he cares for all of us equally. He created us all as equals. And heaven is not going to be some segregated space. And so Ellen White says that we are all journeying to the same heaven and there's no color line in heaven. And so we have to embrace that. And I think what's critical for our pioneers, what they recognized is that if you wanted to, if you wanted to go there, if you wanted to enter heaven and later return to the new earth, then you had to prepare for the judgment and the second coming by being active in these ways. Mm -hmm. You had to demonstrate your faith through your actions, just like we read in the book of James. You had to show people that you were preparing for the second coming by speaking out for racial justice and other forms of justice as well. And so this is critical. And I think that in order for us to re regain that, we have to embrace uh, the boldness of our pioneers and, and not be afraid to be unpopular. Um, I think that we went through in the 20th century a, a, a major kick of trying to be respectable, not wanting to look like a cult, not wanting to look uh, like we're on the margins and wanting to look like we're, we're part of this, this stuff and, and part of American society. But that, that all came with a cost. Um, that all came with a cost, I think. And so I think our pioneers have, are challenging us from the grave um, to speak out, to speak out boldly, because this is in fact part of our faith. Mm -hmm. It is part of the three angels' message. It is part of prophecy. It is part of who we are and our identity, and we must get it back. Kevin, thank you very much for your uh, time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to happy to talk with you. 
And uh, listeners, this is Skip L. Thank you for joining the conversation by listening and by following up with further reading and study. And until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.